Well, we're in a series in 1 John, and uh, we did 1 John 1, verse 1, last time, and I intended to teach through verse 10 this morning, but I got stuck on verse 2. So that's where we are. And I have to be honest, this is going to be different. Some of this is going to be review. If you're here and maybe you're newer to evangelicalism uh, or you're a newer Christian, then some of this you probably won't get. Just grab what you can and as it goes by, and you can always ask me questions after, and I'd be happy to answer them. 1 John 3, verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Verse 2. Beloved, now are we children of God. We learned that from verse 1. And it has not been revealed what we shall be, but we know, notice, but we know, this isn't conjecture, this is something that we can be certain about, we can bring this to the bank, we know that when He, Jesus, is revealed, and Jesus is revealed next to us at His rapture, at His return, we shall be like Him. We shall be like Jesus, for we shall see Him as He is. Remember, since His ascension, Jesus exists now in heaven in His post-resurrected, glorified form. In one word, verse 2 is describing a biblical doctrine called glorification. Glorification. Notice the definition. Glorification means that our bodies are scheduled to resemble the perfect anatomical glorified form Jesus received after his resurrection from the dead, minus the scars from his crucifixion. Jesus has retained those crucifixion scars to act as a perpetual reminder of his sacrificial death. Christians are scheduled at some point to be glorified, meaning we will receive Christ-like bodies, minus those crucifixion scars. Question, when are our bodies glorified? When? At what point do our bodies resemble Jesus? Answer, we are glorified at the first phase of Jesus' return. The first phase of His return, that is the rapture. Now, we address this doctrine of glorification in a recent message. But this is a prophetical perspective called, I'm using some big words, so hang with me, dispensational premillennialism. Jesus came to this earth once. He completed his mission, and his mission was to die. And then he left. But before he left, he promised to return to this earth. So he comes a second time. Dispensational premillennialism teaches that Jesus' second coming happens in two distinct phases. The first phase is called the rapture phase. At that phase, Jesus rescues all Christians from off the earth and brings them to heaven. Then there's a seven-year tribulation period on earth. All hell breaks loose on earth during that time. Then Jesus and the souls from all the inhabitants that have been in heaven return to the earth at the second phase called the revelation phase. The rapture is private. 
Only those that participate in the rapture see it happen. Revelation phase is public. The entire earth is aware that Jesus is there. Because Jesus is the promised Messiah, after he returns to earth, he then sets up an actual 1,000-year geopolitical kingdom of peace and prosperity called the millennium. This position is called premillennialism because Jesus returns pre, prior to, meaning before the millennium begins. Now, dispensational premillennialism is the most accepted perspective inside evangelicalism. It is the most common, the most accepted perspective. But to be fair, and we should be fair, there were other alternative perspectives some evangelicals hold to. And we also addressed those in an earlier sermon. Let me just mention them before we move on. Notice historic premillennialism. This is similar. Um, this is dispensational premillennialism in a modified form. Notice there aren't two phases, just one phase, because both phases are merged into one. According to this, uh, Jesus returns after the tribulation, although some historical premillennialists don't believe there's an actual tribulation period. Jesus, though, returns and catches us up to meet him, and then we do an immediate U-turn and come back down to the earth and uh, where he establishes his millennial period. Now, proponents of this position, uh, it's called historic because some of the earlier church fathers uh, taught this. Proponents are Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher from London, apologist Francis Schaeffer, uh, current theologians D.A. Carson and John Piper, and seminary president Albert Muller. Second position is called post-millennialism, post meaning after. So this perspective teaches that in a gradual progressive sense, more and more nations are becoming Christianized. So things are getting better and better as nations become Christianized, and so things improve until Jesus decides that societies have changed enough to receive him, and then he returns. Now notice, nations are being Christianized, things are getting better and better and better. How's that working? I don't think so. Proponents of this position are the great theologian Jonathan Edwards, Methodist evangelist John Wesley, and apologist R.C. Sproul, and another brilliant apologist, James White. A third position, as an alternative to the one I hold to, is amillennialism. A or A means no. So amillennialism teaches there is no actual, literal, 1,000-year messianic geopolitical kingdom on earth, <clears throat> but that the millennium is spiritual, completely spiritual. Um, it's not actual, it's not literal, it is spiritual. According to this position, uh, the millennium <clears throat> started at Jesus' birth and concludes at his return. So, according to them, we are now in the millennial period because these people spiritualize every passage that addresses this subject. All millennialism is also called Millennium Now because we believe we're in it. Um, proponents are church fathers Eusebius and Augustine, Protestant reformers John Calvin and Martin Luther, and more recent uh, best-selling author J.I. Packard. I might add, Augustine was considered one of the great earlier church fathers of the Catholic Church, 
Um, the Catholic Church holds to amillennialism. But I promise you, if you were to go across the parking lot to St. Gauls and ask their parishioners about there, you would not find one single person that had any clue about what we're talking about. I doubt you would find many that even know Jesus is returning, but you wouldn't find a single person that knows anything about their church's position on this subject. It's all millennial, but they don't know that because they're not taught. There's one more perspective. Someone actually mentioned to me, he said, I'm a pan-millennialist. I said, what is a pan-millennialist? He said, that's someone that doesn't sweat it because everything's going to just pan out in the end. <laughs> the sad part was I think he was serious. I really do. I'm going to do an exercise. I did this first service. Some of you listen to uh, uh, different teachers on the radio, read different authors, study theologians, uh, different pastors you see. I want you to give me a name. Raise your hand. Give me a name. And I'll tell you, if I know, I'll tell you what position they hold to of these four positions. Uh, give me somebody. Raise your hand. Give me a name. Somebody. Just give me a name. Yes. Dr. Jeffress, First Baptist Church, Dallas, is a dispensational premillennialist, as I am. Yes. All C. Sproul was uh, postmillennial. A lot of people, though, in the Reform movement are either amillennial or post. So I was kind of surprised he was post, but he was. But he's in heaven now, and he knows better. It's all good. Okay. <laughs> Somebody else, raise your hand. Yeah. Bodibachum is, I think, amillennial. Pretty sure he is not. Kind of surprised, but I think he's amillennial. He could be post, but I think he's amillennial. He's great, though. When it comes to, you know he's great. You've listened to him. Yeah, Steve. David Jeremiah is a dispensational premillennialist. Yes. Um, also a graduate of Dallas Seminary, which is the elite dispensational premillennial seminary in the world. Yes. Robert who? I don't know that name. Somebody else don't know. What's the last name again? I don't know that name. Who is he? Somebody I should listen to, apparently, huh? Yeah, he, he does a lot of prolific video, um, videos. Uh, that's <laughs> okay, I'm going to guess he's a dispensational premillennialist, but I will look it up. I will look it up. Maybe somebody else knows. Yeah, Stan. John As a dispensational premillennialist, yes. Okay. Somebody else, give me a name. Yes. John Piper is, I think I mentioned him earlier, John Piper is actually a historic premillennialist. Yeah. Yeah. Those are all good people. All good people. We just differ on our perspectives, guys. And, uh, and so it's not a problem. Because all of these perspectives, other than panmillennialism, all of these perspectives fit inside a historic Christian context. So we don't need to be super hyper-dogmatic. Now, I personally couldn't attend a church that wasn't dispensational premillennial uh, in their approach to eschatology, but, uh, but there's some really good people that, that have alternate opinions, as we said. So I'm not so dogmatic that I ostracize and discredit our Christian brothers and sisters that share a different perspective. Now, remember this. The fact Jesus is returning is a non-negotiable, essential Christian teaching. We know that. It's not debatable unless you just deny and reject Scripture. But the specifics about his return are not considered an essential teaching. There is some room for disagreement and some room for debate, and that's the reason there are good and gifted theologians, as we just mentioned, on all sides of this question. Now, for someone to argue that Jesus is not returning, 
He's in heaven and not returning to this earth. That is unquestionable false teaching. But none of the millennial perspectives we just mentioned do that. All of them teach that Jesus is returning to this earth just at different times and under different circumstances. <laughs> so <clears throat> all the perspectives we just mentioned are legitimate alternatives. Now, remember this. <clears throat> Jesus is the promised Jewish Messiah. The word Messiah means anointed one. Most often, um, Israel would anoint kings. Uh, so Jesus, as Messiah, is the ultimate ruler God has anointed to govern his people, to govern the Jewish people, and through that governance, bless all the people on earth. So Jesus presented himself as the Messiah to the Jewish people, but he was rejected as a fraudulent Messiah and was then crucified. So the modern Jewish person now doesn't believe that Jesus as Messiah actually came to this earth some 20 centuries ago. Now, some modern Jewish people believe he was a historical character because it's very difficult to refute that, but they don't believe he was Messiah. Now, the word Jewish is interesting because it can be used to describe someone's religious identification, someone's ethnic identification, or someone's racial identification. Sometimes those identifications are so intermingled that the three are almost identical. Now, some Jews are Jewish in an ethnic sense, Jewish in a racial sense, but are not religious. Some are completely secular. Uh, some are real religious. Some are actually atheists. Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud are examples of men that were ethnically, racially Jewish, but profound atheists. From a purely religious perspective, though, Judaism has always been divided into different sects, both in ancient times and now in modern times. The famous Jewish historian Josephus defined four major sects of Judaism that existed in New Testament times. Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and Zealots four different sects. Let me comment on each one. The Pharisees were the strictest sect. Remember, all male females weren't permitted to be a Pharisee. Uh, and the Pharisees pretended, notice I said pretended, to keep even the smallest parts of the Mosaic law. The Pharisees were religious fundamentalists. The Pharisees were strict legalists and extremely judgmental of non-Pharisees. We call them religious snobs. Second were Sadducees, another ruling class of religious Jews. Remember, the 70-member Sanhedrin was Israel's highest court, uh, probably comparable to our Supreme Court. And both Pharisees and Sadducees sat on that court. The Sadducees were ancient religious liberals, in contrast to those Pharisees. Sadducees rejected all the supernatural components to Judaism. That's the reason the differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees were primarily theological. Example, Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead, and the Sadducees did not. That's the reason they were sad, you see? That's what... That is really old, just so you know. I just thought I'd see if I'd, it worked. Essenes were the ones responsible for creating the copies of the Old Testament found in the famous archaeological discovery, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then the Zealots were the smallest sect and were essentially Jewish freedom fighters that hated Rome. 
and wanted to use a militant means to force the Roman government out of the Holy Land. In a technical sense, Christianity also started as a sect of Judaism. Christianity started as devout Jewish people believed in Jesus and received him as the promised Messiah and then as their savior and forgiver. In modern times, we call that Messianic Judaism. A Jewish person now that receives Jesus is considered a Messianic Jew. Also, Christianity is a fulfillment or completion of ancient Judaism. So sometimes we call a Messianic Jewish person a completed Jew, but they are a brother and sister in Christ. Um, Modern Judaism is divided into three different sects, Reformed, Conservative, and Orthodox. Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox. Let me comment on each one. Reformed Judaism is the most theologically liberal sect of Judaism. Such things as praying in the Hebrew language, eating according to kosher dietary restrictions. I assume most people are aware uh, kosher describes a special diet mentioned in Leviticus 11, also mentioned in Deuteronomy 14, a diet that permits certain foods to be eaten. Those foods are considered clean foods. Also forbids certain foods to be eaten. Those foods are considered unclean foods. Sometimes, though, kosher can be complicated. As an example, kosher fish has to have fins and scales. If it doesn't have fins and scales, it cannot be kosher, cannot be eaten. I have friends in the Bay Area who fish for sturgeon, and sturgeon is good fish. If any of you ever had sturgeon, it's good. But sturgeon presents a problem. It has fins, it has scales, but those scales are not easily detached from the fish. And because they're so difficult to remove from the fish, it is considered a non-kosher food, and it is forbidden to be eaten according to Jewish restrictions. Other uh, seafood considered non-kosher are clams. There goes my clam chowder. Uh, Oysters, uh, crab, and shrimp. Not permitted under Jewish dietary law. Also, uh, there are other Jewish customs, such as separating men and women in public worship, meaning in the synagogue, men are seated on one side, women are seated on the opposite side. That is so strange to me, but that that happens uh, in Judaism. But Basically, Reformed Judaism says all of these things we've just mentioned are outdated and irrelevant. So they have no credibility to those that are Reformed. Um, Reformed Judaism teaches that the Hebrew Scriptures are not inspired and are not authoritative and are subject to someone's own personal interpretation. Second, conservative Judaism isn't as conservative as one might think but it is more conservative than is Reformed Judaism. Conservative Judaism does maintain kosher dietary restrictions. It does encourage Sabbath worship, but it uses both the common language of the people, meaning the local language and the Hebrew language in the public services. And it doesn't separate men and women during worship. There is no segregation. Uh, But conservative Judaism also as Reformed Judaism, doesn't consider the Hebrew Scriptures inspired and authoritative. I should add this. The Hebrew Scriptures are the same as our Old Testament, but Jewish people don't call it the Old Testament. 
We do, but they don't. Because Old Testament implies there's a New Testament, and Judaism rejects the New Testament and rejects Jesus, who is, you know, the big idea of the New Testament. So Hebrew scriptures, according to Judaism, are called the Tanakh. T-A-N-A-K-H, Tanakh. It's pronounced different ways. I say it probably the worst possible way. Call it Tanakh. Anyway, Orthodox Judaism is the most conservative and most traditional of the sects. It encourages rabbinic Judaism. It encourages all traditional rituals, all traditional practices, uh, such as circumcision and the kosher dietary requirements and Sabbath worship at the synagogue. The contention is that Moses received the Torah, the Jewish Torah, that's the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Old Testament. Uh, Moses received the Torah from God himself, and then he passed it on to the people. And those Hebrew scriptures, according to this sect, are inspired and are authoritative and are applicable to all people at all times. Now, probably, for those of you who listen to different podcasts and things, probably the most well-known Orthodox Jewish men on the Internet are conservative commentators, Dennis Prager and Ben Shapiro. I might add, both are brilliant, brilliant men. They're both Orthodox Jewish men, but both have much respect for us as, as evangelicals. Now, most religious Jews, not irreligious Jews, not secular Jews that are more atheistic or agnostic, most religious Jewish people worldwide are Orthodox, although conservative and reform Jews are more common in the U.S. here and in certain parts of Europe. I might add a footnote. Um, Anti-Semitism has always been foreign to me in part because of how we were raised. Uh, we were raised during elementary school in the southwest side of Kansas City. From kindergarten through sixth grade, and Stephen should remember this, I think, from kindergarten through sixth grade until we moved to a suburb just north of Kansas City, most, most, not some, most of my school friends were Jewish. It's interesting, we were six blocks from Hale Cook Elementary School and uh, surprise, surprise, it's still standing. Um, and three houses down from ours were the Roberts. Monica Roberts and I were the same age. So we were in the same grades. So our mothers arranged for Monica and I to walk together to and from school, those six blocks to and from school. Something we wouldn't recommend our children do now because our communities are infested with sexual predators. But then it was the happy days, 50s, and so we could do that. I don't remember our conversations going to and from school. I do remember she was very, very Jewish. My best friend was Jewish. His name was Terry Smith, and both his parents were doctors. He did not live in my neighborhood. Um, I had a friend named Tommy Sight. His father owned Sight Brothers Chevrolet in Kansas City in third grade. He talked our teacher into going to see his father, and she bought a Chevrolet. Third grade. Okay? So I had exposure earlier on to Judaism, and I, I never entered my mind that people, that anti-Semitism would even exist. Of course, I'm convinced... If you let children be, racism doesn't exist. It's only because parents and associations and the media cause them to become racist in their ideology. 
Now, it's interesting that these three different modern Jewish sects have different perspectives on the Messiah. Reformed Judaism rejects an actual singular messianic person, but it does believe in a futuristic messianic age of peace. The problem is, how can a messianic age exist without a Messiah? I can't understand that. Conservative Judaism is a mixed bag. Some conservative Jewish people believe in an actual singular messianic person as we do, and then some believe only in a futuristic messianic age of peace and no personal Messiah. Devout Orthodox Jews, though, do believe, do believe in an actual singular messianic person and are committed to waiting for him to return. An example, a 12th century Jewish scholar named uh, Maimonides Maimonides identified 13 principles of Orthodox Judaism. One of those principles said this about the Messiah. I'm quoting, I believe with perfect faith in the coming of the Messiah. And even though he may delay, I will nevertheless wait for him. Devout Orthodox Jewish people argue that someone should not be just waiting for the Messiah, but should be waiting anxiously for him and should actually be preparing for his arrival. And to demonstrate where we are on the prophetical timeline, this is happening now. Listen to this carefully. Some religious Jewish people that own real estate in Jerusalem, but are currently residents in other countries, those real estate owners landlords, have taken legal precautions to ensure that they can return to their Jerusalem residences once Messiah does come. In apartments, condos, and houses, uh, rental properties across Jerusalem, there are clauses in lease agreements called, quote, a messianic clause. A messianic clause. Those contracts stipulate that when the Messiah this Jewish Redeemer does arrive that the lease, quote, can be immediately terminated at the will of the landlord. Because these Jewish owners of properties and landlords in other countries are concerned that the Messiah will return, will construct a third temple, will reestablish temple worship, he will turn Israel into a modern paradise and bring about global peace. And these Jewish landlords and property owners don't want to be stuck waiting for their rental property tenants' contracts to run out before they can return to Israel and move back in. The article I read said there wasn't an exact count of numbers of leases in Jerusalem that do contain a messianic clause, but those leases with that clause are being requested often enough that after some investigation, all of the Jewish Jerusalem property managers and real estate attorneys that were contacted, all of them were aware of this messianic clause, and all except one had actually dealt with it firsthand. This is interesting to me. Devout religious Jewish people are waiting on Messiah to come the first time. As Christians, we are waiting on Messiah to come the second time. Because we believe he came the first time and was rejected. But both of us are expecting his return. 
The difference is, as Christians, we know that this promised Jewish Messiah is Jesus. Jesus fulfilled all of the Messianic prophecies mentioned in the Old Testament. No one else could do that. So Jesus is the Messiah, according to our position. And at his coming, the now believing, unbelieving, pardon me, the now unbelieving Jewish population will see for themselves that Messiah is in fact Jesus and will realize that centuries ago their ancestors actually crucified the Messiah. And that realization will devastate them. Notice Zechariah 12, verses 10 and 11. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look upon me whom they pierced. And who did ancient Israel pierce and crucify? Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Verse 11, in that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem. That's the prophesied reaction of Jewish people seeing Jesus the instant he returns at the second revelation of his return. Remember, he retains the scars from his crucifixion, and the Jewish people will see the spear wound in his side and see the nail prints in his hands and in his feet. And it will suddenly register to them that their ancestors crucified the Messiah. Utter shame and intense grief and mourning will be the prevailing emotion throughout the Jewish people worldwide. It's interesting that all of these different perspectives on Jesus' return we just mentioned earlier, all of them would still include our glorification, meaning all of them would include us transitioning to resemble Jesus. So even if the particular eschatological perspective someone holds to is different than mine, this subject is still relevant because according to 1 John 3, verse 2, we're going to become like Jesus the moment we see Jesus. If we see him return before the millennial period, that's historic premillennialism or dispensational premillennialism, or if we see him return after a facsimile of a millennial period, that's postmillennialism, or if we see him return at some point if there is no actual literal millennial period, that's called amillennialism. But it doesn't matter when we see him, we're going to be instantly changed to resemble him. Now, since I hold to a dispensational pre-tribulation rapture, meaning the rapture I believe happens before the tribulation period, and I hold to a pre-millennial perspective, According to that perspective, at the rapture, there are two separate but almost simultaneous parts to this glorification. The first part is a resurrection, where dead Christians are resurrected. And the second part is a translation, where Christians that are still alive are translated. Translated in this instance means to change into another form. Now this is the order. Jesus returns from heaven to receive us to himself at the rapture. The word rapture is not an exact biblical word because the actual word rapture isn't found in Scripture. Rapture is a word theologians 
have assigned to this prophetic phenomena. We get the word rapture from the Latin word repair, R-A-P-E-R-E, repair. Repair means to catch away, to snatch away, to remove and relocate. So at this rapture phase, this repair phenomena, Jesus descends from heaven. He stops at some point in the atmosphere above the earth, and then in an instant there's this repair or rapture phenomena. Jesus snatches out all Christians from off the earth, both those Christians that are dead and those Christians that are alive. Both groups are raptured. Now let me just break this down. The first order of business is that the bodies of deceased Christians are resurrected, meaning those dead bodies are made alive, come up out of the grave, or urn, and during that resurrection process are reconstructed to resemble Jesus' body and so as to exist forever. Understand that only the bodies of Christians are resurrected at the rapture. Non-Christian bodies remain buried until after the millennial period. There will be a resurrection for them. It's not good, but it will happen. Also remember, Jesus doesn't descend from heaven alone. Joining him are the immaterial souls from all the Christians that have died in the centuries prior to that moment. Those souls from heaven descend, besides Jesus, to the atmosphere above the earth, and then their bodies are resurrected and recreated, come up out of the graves, and they meet in the air, are rejoined together, their souls are reabsorbed into the resurrected body, and once those souls and resurrected recreated bodies are reunited, those persons go on into heaven and wait there throughout the tribulation period that transpires on the earth. I'm going to make this practical. At 7.30 a.m. this past Tuesday morning, Dr. Charles Stanley died at age 90. How many of you know Dr. Charles Stanley? Okay. Um, he pastored First Baptist Church Atlanta for more than 50 years. He authored 70 books. He was also a televangelist in a technical sense. He was an honorable, honorable televangelist. Some aren't, as we know. He also headed a radio program called In Touch that is broadcast in 180 nations and in 55 languages. For decades, he was known as America's pastor. He was a solid Bible preacher. I might add, he was also a dispensational premillennialist. Charles Stanley is now deceased. And that means since this past Tuesday, he's been in two different locations. One is that his soulish essence, his soulish self, is in the third heaven where God is. That happened the microsecond he expired. Boom, instant heaven. His... Second, his bodily remains or corpse is now being prepared to be buried. There was a public viewing of Dr. Stanley as he laid in a casket yesterday at First Baptist Church in Atlanta from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. And I'm sure the crowds were enormous and probably had to extend that time uh, because he was so popular. At the time of the rapture, Dr. Stanley will be in two distinct locations. His soul still in heaven, and on earth his bodily remains uh, will be in a casket buried in the ground or in a mausoleum. Now, since we're on this subject, let me address a question people have about cremation. More and more people are choosing to be cremated. 
In the U.S., more than 56% of people are choosing cremation. That number is expected to increase to more than 70% before 2030. The biggest reason that cremation is so popular is because it's more affordable. It's an economic reason. Traditional burials are extremely expensive. So much so I personally cannot afford to die. (laughs) Some people argue that cremation is also more accommodating to the environment because it saves land. So this is a controversial question. This is a relevant question. We plan to die unless we're alive at the rapture. I'm kind of hoping for that. But other than that, we're going to die. So are we going to be cremated? Are we going to be buried? Theologian N.T. Wright isn't excited about the practice of cremation, arguing that cremation is part of Hindu and Buddhist teaching. And that is true. Hank Hanegraaff from the Christian Research Institute uh, tends to agree. And even Billy Graham felt negative about cremation. He made the statement, quote, we should honor the earthly tent of our dwelling when it is in our power to do so. For the physical body is the work of God's hands. But none of those men felt that cremation was a forbidden practice, meaning something forbidden in the scriptures, but instead felt that burial, according to them, would be a better option. Let's think through cremation for a moment. And the reason I believe cremation is an acceptable Christian practice. Two verses. Genesis 3, verse 19. God was addressing the first man, Adam, and explained to him some of the consequences from his sin he committed in the garden. Notice God said to Adam, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. Remember, God created the first man from the ground. For out of it, meaning out of the ground, you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Ecclesiastes 12, 7, Solomon comments on death. Then the dust, meaning our bodies, will return to the earth as it was. And the spirit, our soul, will return to God who gave it. I read about a little girl that came home from Sunday school, and she was sort of confused and said, Mom, Mom, my teacher said we come from dust. Is that true? Her mother said, Yes, yes, that's true. We have come from dust. This little girl added, Mom, the teacher also said that when we die, we turn back to dust. Is that true? Her mother said, Yes, honey, it's true. We came from dust, and we go back to dust. This little girl said, okay, okay, mom. Then come look under my bed because someone's under there, either coming or going, and I can't tell which. (laughs) It's probably a clue to go home and clean out under the bed. Anyway, unless incredible expense and effort is made on a human corpse, then all bodies that are left alone eventually return to dust-like particles. Vladimir Lenin was a revolutionary and the first head of the Soviet of Soviet Russia and the Soviet Union. He was an ideological Marxist, and his opinions on that subject became known as Leninism. He absolutely hated capitalism, and he hated religion. And he became an atheistic, ruthless dictator and a brutal mass murderer. He was scum of the earth. But the Russians were deceived. 
and revered him. So that after he died in 1924, his body was entombed in a mausoleum in Moscow and has been preserved there ever since under precise temperature and lighting conditions. This is linen. That's a close-up. Remember, next year, one century of preservation. All of Lennon's internal organs have been removed, and a team of scientists are assigned to preserve, his, to preserve his skeleton, muscles, and skin. It's expensive to do that, as those scientists constantly monitor his condition, and every 18 months, his corpse is taken to a lab underneath the viewing room and re-embalmed. Lenin's corpse is in Moscow, but I can guarantee that his wretched and evil soul is burning in Hades. The point is that unless extraordinary and expensive measures are taken to preserve someone's corpse, as per Mr. Lenin, then all human bodies ultimately decompose and turn to basic dust. That means, don't miss this, that means all cremation does is to speed up the process of decomposition and a corpse return to dust. Did you get that? All the cremation does is speed up the process of decomposition and a corpse return to dust. Ultimately, a corpse that is buried and a corpse that is cremated, both corpses end up in the same condition. The only difference is the cremated corpse gets to that ultimate end much, much, much sooner than a corpse that has been buried. And remember, God doesn't even need particles of someone's corpse in order to resurrect that someone from the dead. People have died in incredible explosions, some even in nuclear blasts, and some have died under other extreme circumstances where there were no remains left, no bodily remains, nothing. I knew someone in Kansas City that had a son that worked in a steel mill. I don't know what happened. Something happened, though, and he fell into a vat of molten steel. There was nothing that remained, nothing. But that isn't going to prevent his bodily resurrection. So I am convinced, unless cremation is a part of some pagan religious ritual, unless it is performed for those wrong reasons, then I believe creation, cremation is a legitimate option for the Christian. So you can go home and talk about it. Notice the definition. A tangible material bodily resurrection is the action or fact of someone's dead corpse being made alive and reconstructed as to exist forever in that state. Now, there were resurrections throughout both Old and New Testaments. Jesus resurrected three people from the dead we know about, and there might have been more, and the apostles resurrected different people. But the resurrections performed throughout Scripture were incomplete in that those resurrections weren't permanent. That's because those people that were resurrected all died a second time sometime after that. This prophetical re resurrection of our bodies is permanent. No one dies after experiencing this resurrection. Now, notice at the bottom of the prophetical chart that the bodies from Old Testament saints and tribulation saints are resurrected at the end of the tribulation period. 
at the second phase, the revelation phase of Jesus' return. So the first thing to happen as Jesus descends from heaven is to resurrect the bodies of the Christians that have died throughout the church age. The second thing that happens is a translation of those that are left alive. Notice the chart. Christians still alive are translated. I'm using the word translated because translated means to move from one location to another location, and that's exactly what is going to happen. Christians that are still alive at the rapture, I would like to be one. Christians that are still alive at the rapture are going to be caught up from off the earth, and if we're a part of that group, then as we are caught up, our bodies are changed and reconstructed and made as new as the bodies that are resurrected from the dead. We all will have glorified bodies. Ten months ago, I brought a message on our new bodies. And in that presentation, I mentioned um, some characteristics our Christ-like bodies will possess, such as our new bodies will retain their original identities. Our new bodies will be physical as opposed to spiritual. Our new bodies will be able to execute normal human functions. Our new bodies will be perfect in form, and our new bodies will not have limitations. Something we probably should have emphasized more was the permanent, unending, eternal nature of our new bodies. 1 Corinthians 15, this is another commentary on the rapture. Verse 51, notice. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. I once read that last part on the wall of a church nursery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And I thought that was, I thought that was a good thing. Now, notice Paul calls this teaching a mystery. A biblical mystery isn't something mysterious, but it is a sacred secret. A sacred secret means that this teaching was hidden and unknown to the saints in the Old Testament and then revealed to us Christians in the New Testament. I read there are some eight different mysteries mentioned in the New Testament, and this is one of them. In this text, Paul is exposing that sacred secret and revealing that those Christians that are still alive at the time of the rapture do not, do not have to die in order to receive new and changed bodies. That phrase, we shall not all sleep, means we shall not all die. The word sleep is sometimes used in Scripture as a grammatical metaphor, as a common euphemism to describe someone that's dead. That's because the position of the body after death resembles someone sleeping. And that's how the word sleep is used here. John 11 teaches that if a Christian dies, then in biblical language, that person is said to be asleep. His bodily corpse, after he dies, resembles sleep. Notice, not his soul. Contrary to what Seventh-day Adventism teaches, someone's soul doesn't sleep in a comatose, unconscious state inside someone's corpse after death. That doesn't happen. Soul sleep is not a real thing because someone's soul someone's soul evacuates, exits his body at the instance of death. Verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we, 
meaning we that are alive at that moment, shall be changed. So the resurrection of the dead, their bodies brought back to life. And the translation of those that are alive at that moment won't be a process, won't be some sort of supernatural metamorphosis. Instead, it will be an instantaneous recreation from one form to another and better form. And notice it all happens in a moment. The word moment is translated from the Greek word atomos. We get our word atom from atomos. That word describes something so small it cannot be cut. It cannot be divided. So in the smallest amount of time, our bodies are going to be changed to resemble Jesus' post-resurrected body. To further illustrate that Paul said this change will occur in the twinkling of an eye. The Greek word translated as twinkling was used to describe any rapid movement of the eye. The human eye can move faster than any other visible part of the human anatomy. So Paul was emphasizing that the change we experience at the rapture is going to be extremely, extremely fast and instantaneous. There will be a trumpet blast to initiate all this. It won't be the last trumpet to sound from heaven, but the last trumpet sounded to start this process. I suggest that only those Christians that participate in the rapture, either their bodies are resurrected or they're alive and changed and caught up, only Christians that participate in the rapture will actually hear that trumpet. Non-Christians won't hear this trumpet blast and won't be aware of all this happening until after it's happened. And millions and millions and millions of people are missing. Verse 53. Notice this verse. For this corruptible, our present bodies are considered corruptible because our bodies are subject to death, deterioration, decomposition, and decay. For this corruptible, that's us now in these bodies, must put on incorruption. Incorruption is the exact opposite of corruption. It means our bodies cannot die cannot decompose, cannot deteriorate, cannot decay. And this mortal, at the present, we are mortal human beings, meaning we all die. We are literally dead men walking. This mortal must put on immortality, meaning as an immortal being, we cannot die. Immortal means an unending, perpetual existence. Immortal means eternal. Our souls are immortal, and after Jesus returns... If we're dead or alive, it doesn't matter. After Jesus returns, our bodies will also be, at that point, incorruptible and immortal. Now, one of the benefits of bodies that are incorruptible and immortal is, that means no more aging. Now, that's probably insignificant to those of us in this room that are younger. But to those of us that are older, aging is a serious, serious problem. I turned 70 and said, how did I get here? How did this happen? It seems like we just got married. We didn't just get married. We got married 53 years ago this summer. It seems like I just graduated from college. I didn't just graduate. I graduated in 1973. It seems like we just had our first child. We didn't. Our oldest son is 46 years old. How did we get here? It just went by like, boom, like that. And these younger people, young people have a problem. They think us old people have always been old. 
and they think they're never going to get old. But your time is coming. You remember this sermon. Don't you forget it. So how did I get here? And then I'm going, why didn't someone tell me it would be like this? I'm stiff and I'm sore and stuff hurts all the time. Getting old isn't fun. But our new bodies don't get old. Our new bodies don't age. Remember 1 John 3 verse 2 says that some point we're going to resemble Jesus. Jesus ascended into heaven. He was probably at that point in time, we aren't certain, somewhere between 33 and 39. So our new bodies, our glorified bodies, our reconstructed bodies are going to be aged, have an apparent age of, let's put it this way, of the right side of 40. (laughs) Our glorified bodies never age and never die. Verse 54, so when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality meaning when glorification happens when those that are deceased receive their resurrected and recreated bodies to resemble Jesus those that are alive at the rapture are changed caught up and changed to resemble his resurrected body then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory Through the process of glorification, we will be victorious over death. In his book called A Severe Mercy, Sheldon Van Ochten shares the account of his meeting with C.S. Lewis. As Chris cited earlier, uh, C.S. Lewis, famous, famous novelist and uh, Christian apologist, the two men had become close friends. So the men arranged to have lunch. And then after a great lunch and a great time together, Lewis said to his friend, we'll certainly meet again, here or there, there, motioning toward heaven. And then he added, I won't say goodbye, we'll meet again. With those words, the men shook hands and parted. Lewis crossed the street. And then suddenly he turned around toward his friend on the opposite side of the street and shouted to be heard above the noise of the traffic he shouted besides Christians never say goodbye that's true because in our incorrupt immortal glorified bodies and in heaven we will never hear that word goodbye another time that should excite us let's bow our heads Father in heaven thank you for what we've learned I know it's a lot of stuff. And for those that are new, are probably confusing, and I'm sorry about that. I have very limited ability to explain things sometimes, but I hope some of it made sense. I hope everybody here knows there is hope for these bodies of ours, that if we accept Christ, if we are His, that someday these bodies will be changed, they'll be glorified to resemble the body of your Son. No limitations, no aging, no death, no sickness, no troubles, no disappointments, no depression, none of that. So God, we're excited about that. And my prayer would be this morning, if there's anyone in this room who hasn't made that decision to receive Christ, that they'll come to me after this service and say, I want to talk to you. We'll set up an appointment soon where we can sit down. I want everybody in this room to know Christ. I want everyone in this room to be forgiven. I want everyone 
to go to heaven. And I pray that'll happen. So we commit this sermon to you. May you use it to continue to work in our hearts and in our minds. And I thank you. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen. Amen.